We're in Ecclesiastes chapter four. I'm gonna read the whole chapter. Follow along with me. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not been and has not seen all the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all the toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is a vanity and striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and grab a seat. Today's sermon is titled, The Rat Race. The Rat Race, right? This world that we live in, compete, grow, get more, chase after this elusive advancement. And and let me just add a little caveat to the front end of the sermon. Uh, we, we joked around up front about my pink pants and how dumb they are, and, 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 we, and I said, hey, we like, to, we like to have fun at Story Church, but let me just say this, this sermon's not gonna be fun, right? And if I can be honest with you, fun is never the goal when we gather together at Story Church, right? We're all about laughter and, and joking and encouraging each other la- and, and making jokes and having fun when we're gathered as a people. But the goal every single week that we gather at Story Church is to show you from God's word a holy God, the sinfulness of man, and our need for Jesus Christ, Right? Our goal, that is to say, every week is to cause repentance, whether you're a non-Christian or a Christian, that we would turn from our sins and trust all the more in the finished work of Jesus Christ in our place for the forgiveness of sins, for right relationship with God. Because hear me, apart from repentance, apart from peace with God and peace with others, fun and laughter can't exist. Right, It's all downhill from right relationship with God. So when we gather every week, we wanna show the glories of Jesus and how we're desperately in need of him. That's why we gather. That's why we sing what we sing. That's why we pray what we pray. That's why we encourage each other in the ways that we do. And so as you just heard me read through Ecclesiastes chapter four, you probably at some points winced a little bit. Like, ooh, man, that's hard. 
Like it's better to be dead than alive? Ouch. But listen, when God does that, he wants to sober us, to awaken us, to detach us from the things of this world that we might see Jesus in our place and we might see Jesus by his spirit readily available to us. This is what God's drawing us to through his word. And so today, I want you to kind of refuse the urge to try to sanitize what the scriptures say or try to, you know, ignore or omit or whatever else, but take the word for what it says. And as we look through Ecclesiastes 4, here's the main point. The rat race feasts on our sin nature and it divides us, while the gospel frees us from sin and unites us. Okay, this endless rat race that we're living in in this world, what it's gonna do is try to infiltrate our lives and our relationships and our homes. It's gonna try to feast on our sin nature that we might cause more brokenness and more sin one against another. It's gonna divide us, but it's Jesus who frees us from the rat race and unites us together. As we walk through Ecclesiastes 4, there's gonna be four points, right? That works, four and four. Evil oppression under the sun, evil envy under the sun, evil individualism under the sun, and then this godly community from beyond the sun, all right? And if you're new in Ecclesiastes, what we're saying is underneath the sun, all is futile. Everything we do by our own hands and in our own effort underneath the sun, it's vanity. It's like a mist. It's like your breath on a cold night. It's there one second and gone the next. But from beyond the sun, there's a living Lord who created everything and who loves you and he wants to save you and he wants to show you a different way from beyond the sun. All right, so first point. Here's what we're gonna look at. Evil oppression under the sun. This is in verses one through three. We're gonna look at that that in a second. Now, one of the words that I kind of get a deep belly laugh from in our day and age is the word progressive. And I don't necessarily mean progressive strictly politically. I just mean it in general that we believe that society is progressing. Now, if you believe that, if we believe that, if I believe that, then I'm being deluded by Satan. I believe that. And I wanna take an honest look at society and just give you some categories to show you we're not progressing, right? And, this, and that's why I laugh at it. Let me, let me just, all right, here, let me hit you with one, a fun one right out of the gates, right? Fun. Genocide happened to the Israelites in Egypt under Pharaoh's tyrant rule. Happened in the Middle Ages. We see various empires, whether Ottoman or Persian empires, creating genocide on a war-torn path. We know about the 1900s and the 30s and 40s, right? We have Hitler and Mussolini and Germany and Italy creating genocide against the Jews, right? We get rid of Hitler and we're like, we did it. We ended genocide. We've progressed to the place where it's not happening anymore. Wrong, right? We just move straight on to Stalin, Okay, then we have Pol Pot in Cambodia and then Joseph Kony in Uganda, not to mention the the evils going on in North Korea and Cuba under Kim Jong-un and Fidel Castro. And then we have ISIS in the Middle East. And meanwhile, right now, as we gather in China, there's a group of people called the Uyghurs, a Muslim group of people native to a province in China who are actively in genocide, forced sterilization, forced abortion, forced murders of your own family members. And yet we sweep it under the rug. Why? Because we're all in bed with China. 
We've got Disney producing movies there. My own phone gets cheap labor and parts in China. Apple, right? Samsung's not different, by the way. We have the IOC right now, Olympics happening in China, and we're gladly watching it, ignoring the genocide going on there. And then we've got LeBron James, right? I'm a Lakers fan, I'm gonna call him out, right? His platform of equality and justice on social media. Meanwhile, he won't raise a word against China because he profits from it. We have not progressed, kidding me? Sexuality. Right, we look back at the barbaric stuff that happened in the Roman and the Greek empires and we're like, ooh, that's gross. Like, to be a man in the Roman empire, you had to get raped by another man at five? Brutal. Right, and then we have Solomon himself. You know, all these wives and concubines adding up to a thousand. Wrong, okay? It's okay to say Solomon's wrong. He's a fallen human. The Bible says one man, one woman for life. Then we get in the 60s, this sexual revolution, currently transgender revolution. Meanwhile, revolution just means spinning, right? You're going in circles. You're not producing anything. You're not going anywhere. It's no revolution, right? We think we're progressing in this idea of gender and sexuality, and all we're doing is walking into a Romans 120 world where God's giving us over to the debased sins of our flesh. Relationships, right? More connected than ever. Social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, you name it. Metaverse, right? Find your community online. Come on. Right? We see all the effects now. We have the data of what social media does to us, particularly young girls. Suicide, depression, addiction, catfishing, cancel culture, you name it. It's ruining people. We think we're more connected, but we're less connected than ever. We're not progressing. Globalization, right? Air travel and multinational corporations now make global, the global world feel smaller and more available and connected than ever. And all it's done is create more rivalry, more war, more competition, more politicking, more backhanded treatment, more under-the-table gifts so that you scratch my back, I scratch yours. We're not progressing anywhere. We're not I mean, that just should make you laugh. And Ecclesiastes itself will laugh and say, if you think we're progressing ever under the sun, then you're just living in futility. You're just walking in vanity. Now, look at verses one through three with me. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now, last week in chapter three, Stephen preached, and he showed us from Ecclesiastes three this idea of injustice and oppression. And the preacher here is gonna keep going on injustice and oppression. Last week, it was about injustice in particular places. This week, he is talking about injustice towards people. That he says, People corrupted by their sin nature, the second they have a little bit of power, they're going to abuse it to oppress others. 
to push back and, and make others feel like they're being squeezed on and pressed in on. That's what oppression looks like. And the Old Testament has some categories for us of what oppression one to another looks like. Let's look at the, the slide here on the screen. All right, so in the oppressor category, we have a king who abuses his power to oppress his citizens. That's in Proverbs. The master who oppresses his servant in Deuteronomy. The rich who oppress the poor in Proverbs and in Amos. Bureaucratic officials, governors, mayors who oppress the poor as well. Ecclesiastes 5, we'll see that in a couple of weeks. Poor who oppress the other poor. Society in general who oppress refugees, orphans, and widows, and we might put homeless in our day and age. Individuals and banks and landowners who oppress other individuals through high interest rates, fraudulent loans, extortion, and robbery, Ezekiel 22. We have business owners who oppress their customers and society in general through false weights and measures, false advertisement, and faulty business practices. And then homeowners, real estate agents, renters, lenders, who uh, oppress those who are in need of a home through buying or renting. Sky-high prices, you know, way too high of deposit, they never give. All of these kind of things we see throughout the scripture. And, and again, as we look at that, we probably think, wow, we really haven't progressed. You probably look at that and you're like, I see a couple of those categories going on in our day and age, in our own midst. We haven't really progressed anywhere. And this is what the preacher's saying. There's these corrupt people in the oppressor category who gain a little bit of power and they're hurting others and creating injustice. And it says it's creating tears for them and there's no one to comfort them in their tears. He goes so far as to say that those who are dead have it better than those who are living. And the best of all is if you've just not been born yet, because you don't have to experience the injustice and the brokenness and the sinfulness and the oppression that is going on in our world. Now, here's what we tend to do in our human nature. We tend to look at that oppressed category and say, that's me. I'm right there in the oppressed category. I'm always the one being hurt. I'm always the victim. And sure, maybe at certain times we all experience it, in different ways. But it, what the Bible is saying, if you've ever been in a re relationship, you've oppressed someone else. Because in every relationship, there's a power dynamic at play. Whether it's boss to employee, manager to employee, husband to wife, wife to husband, parent to child, grandparent to grandchild, coach to whatever, teacher to student, friend to friend, boyfriend, girlfriend, and fiance to fiance. In every relationship, there's a power dynamic at play. And in every relationship, our human nature says, I'm gonna lie to get my way. I'm gonna manipulate to get my way. I'm gonna work my way through some back channels to get what I want. And I don't care who it hurts because I am so corrupt in my sin and so selfish in my sin nature. I want what I want and I don't care what the effects are of it. So we look at this and we say, man, I sure am oppressed. Okay, but we're the oppressor. And the greatest issue in which we've ever oppressed someone else is God himself a holy God, and we are guilty of injustice, and it's called treason against him and his commands. So again, Ecclesiastes wants to lay waste on us and say, this rat race, this world that we live in, it wants you to abuse your power to get ahead. 
It wants you to abuse your relationships and hurt those around you to get ahead. And we look underneath the sun to try to find justice, to try to find hope, and it's just not there. Sorry, guys. Got a little runny nose this morning. The justice is not found underneath the sun. Right, Stephen talked about it last week. We'll bring it up again. We look to political parties to create justice for us on earth. Hear me, Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Independent, Green Party, Whig Party, everything in between, corrupt. Every bit of it, corrupt, liars, politickers. Not gonna create justice by changing political parties. No amount of money, education, system, none of it underneath the sun is going to create justice, which is why as God's people, we look beyond the sun for justice. And we look beyond the sun for the oppressed one to find freedom. And what the Bible tells us is that when we abandoned God and we created treason against him, he didn't leave us alone to figure out a way. He sent his only son, Jesus, to face the ultimate injustice. That he would take our sin and our debt and our shame and our record of brokenness against him And he would put it on his own resume and he would die on the cross in our place. On the cross of Jesus Christ is where true justice and true mercy happen. And Jesus, in exchange for all of our junk, all of our sin, gives back to us his record of perfection. That's the justice we're actually longing for. Everything else we're longing for and trying to create on earth is just an echo of true justice. So how then do we create justice on earth? We live as the people of God in the way that Jesus lived for us, right? No amount of rallying and and protesting and voting and all those kind of things. Whatever, do it if you want to. That's not true justice. Maybe bits and pieces, but not the full thing. The way in which we create justice on earth is by being people of the gospel, building relationships, preaching the gospel, seeing people forgiven of sin, seeing people united back to the Father. That's the only way we can be freed from sin. That's the only way we can be forgiven of sin. This is how we do true justice on earth, friends. Build relationships and preach the gospel. Evil injustice underneath the sun. Number two, evil envy under the sun. This is verses four through six. Now, envy is one of the chief sins that you and I struggle with. This has been true since the days of Cain and Abel when one murdered the other because of envy. Our entire world, this rat race of a world that we live in is structured to feast on your envy and to cause you to sin. Malls and shopping centers, right? Feast on your, see what everyone else has, grow jealous of it. Well, the good news is there's 15 malls within a mile radius of you. Go get whatever you want. Social media feasts on your envious nature. Man, he posted that photo and got all these likes. I better do the same thing. I better go present myself as something I'm not because I'm jealous of all the attention that guy's getting. The entertainment industry, women, feast on your envy right? We can see a woman on the screen. Wow, she's 60 and she looks like that. I'm 30 and I look like this. I better go see the closest plastic surgeon. Feasting 
on your envy. Sports, you, you name it, feasting upon your envy. Look at verse, verses four through six with me. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from what? A man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hand, hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. So the preacher here in Ecclesiastes 4 says that envy is one of your center driving desires in your sin nature. In verse 4, he begins with your, your work and your talents. He says your toil and your skill. He says all this working underneath the sun, you are doing it driven by your envy. you got to buy stuff to impress people that you don't know with money you don't have. Which is why America lives in crippling credit card debt unrivaled in human history. And listen, you and I are addicts, and our addiction is driven by our envy, and America rewards this addiction, and this addiction is called workaholism. We are all addicts, every single one of us. The only country on earth that rivals America in what we call work ethic, but is really just called workaholism, is Japan. And, and so listen to some stats with me. 45% of American working adults are required to work more than 73 hours a week. 60% of managers at multinational corporations don't take a day of vacation time. This is my favorite one. Germans get more done in 20% of the time of their American counterparts. Germans are radically efficient. That's not fair. Workaholism tends to lead to sleep deprivation, seizures, alcoholism, interrupted metabolic and uh, psychological functioning, irritability, increased inhibition, poor decision-making, and more. And I have all the studies cited here. I guess they're not on there. That's all good. But here's the deal. Our envy drives us to be workaholics because we gotta get more because someone else has it. So let me, let me just put before you some questions to ask yourself. Am I a workaholic? I got eight questions. Do you work or read at meals? Do you think about work while driving, falling asleep, or talking to others? And listen, when I'm talking to you and I see your mind drifting, I know what you're doing. I do it too. Do you get impatient with people who have interests outside of work? Do you turn hobbies into money-making ventures? Do you even have hobbies? Right? We all laugh at that one. Have your long hours hurt your family or other relationships? Do you have a performance fixation? Does your workaholism lead to compulsive decision-making? And is the only way, here it is, to turn off your work through alcoholism, gluttony, or sleeping pills? So I think every single one of us in this room can look at those questions and say, I'm a workaholic. And again, America rewards this. You get paid more if you work more hours and don't take any time off, even if you're killing yourself. And it's driven by keeping up with the Joneses. Envy feeds on our sin nature. Listen to Oz Guinness on envy. We are always most vulnerable to envying those closest to our gifts and our callings. Musicians generally envy musicians, not politicians. Politicians, other politicians. Sports people, other sports people. Professors, other professors. Pastors, other pastors. Now hear me. 
I don't feel envious towards doctors in this room, successful doctors, because I don't have a medical degree and I don't really care, right? I'm proud of you. I don't feel envious towards Jonathan's musical talents, which are supreme. But listen, I tried for five years to learn the keyboard. Didn't work. I don't have rhythm. But if you put me in a room with a group of pastors, that's when my heart turns green. Look what he has that I don't. I want that. I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get that little thing. Every one of us are envious, and it's all vanity is what the preacher says. So workaholism is vanity driven by envy. So let's swing the pendulum all the way over to the other side. Let's just, let's just be lazy. Look at verse five again with me. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. This is the guy or gal who has nothing and does nothing. The way you fight covetousness and envy is by increasing in laziness. If you just don't care, it won't matter. If you just convince yourself you don't want any of it, if you can feel apathetic, then at least you won't feel bad for not having something someone else has. Or maybe we deal with it by making our laziness noble. Somehow we're above the materialistic people around us because we don't strive for any of that. We strive for nothing. That kind of lux ain't for us. We crave a different kind of buzz. So that's a lyric, by the way. So then rather being killed by the rat race of the working world, we opt out of the working world altogether. The text says you fold your hands, you do nothing. And the preacher says those people are fools. If the fool acts like this, he eats his own flesh, which is to say you consume your life, you cannibalize yourself, you have nothing to eat because the Bible says he who doesn't work doesn't eat. So what do we do? In our laziness, we eat up our savings because we won't work hard. You eat up your potential. You eat up the skills that God has given you. And the scriptures say we are fools for that. So we swing the pendulum and it's like, all right, I'm not gonna be a workaholic. I'm just gonna be lazy. But the preacher doesn't give room for either one of those. That's underneath the sun and it's vanity. What's beyond the sun? The way beyond the sun is the way of contentment. Be diligent, but don't be a workaholic. In verse six, it says it's better to have one hand and peace than it is to have two hands and strife, right? So work really hard and do it to the glory of God. And then at the end of your working day, go home. Enjoy your family, enjoy your friends, live at peace, have fun, cultivate hobbies, sleep without obsessing over your own success, take time off, be more than a machine, steward your money earned for the good of God's kingdom purposes, have less, just have one handful and be at peace with God and with others. Don't be lazy, do not be lazy. Don't have zero handfuls because those who don't work don't eat again. Christianity is not communism. It doesn't work. Work and work hard and earn a fair living and then use your work. Don't let your work use you. And, and just as an aside, if you're a boss or a manager in this room or online or wherever you find yourself, your job is to not abuse your people. Let them work, let them work hard and then send them home and give them vacation time and free them up and don't abuse them, okay? It's our job to steward them in that way. Philippians 4 says this. 
Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, that's not a Bible verse for your eye black. Like, God doesn't care that much about the Super Bowl and Cooper Cups winning the Super Bowl, all right? And I'm a Rams fan, and I was really happy with that. And all you Packer fans, gotcha. (sighs) This is a verse about contentment. That we don't need to chase after abounding and materialistic riches, because if we have Jesus, we are rich in the gospel. Right? And if we have need and we're in poverty and we're lacking in this world, we're not actually lacking as people of the gospel. We have everything we need. So in all things, I can be content in Jesus because he has saved me from my own sins and he has secured me for eternity. So my identity and my image and all of my life is not driven by my perceived worldly success in the rat race. I don't need to be a workaholic because Jesus has saved me. I don't need to be lazy because Jesus has saved me. I'm content in all of it. So Tuesday at two o'clock, when you see your coworker, your friend, your child's friend, have something that you want and your heart is just like, gotta get that by any means necessary. Put off the envy and put on contentment. Remind yourself of the gospel. And, and listen, if we refuse to do this, all the envy is gonna do again is divide us and create more sin and more brokenness. But if we remember the gospel and we walk in a contentment that only the gospel produces, we'll be united together and we'll be united to God. That's envy under the sun. Number three, evil individualism under the sun. This is verses seven and eight and 13 through 16. Now, American history is built on the ideas of John Locke, history lesson. The American dream is built on John Locke's expressed individualism. He coined something called the social contract theory. The social contract theory influenced the the fabric of America more than anything else. The American revolutionaries were drawing upon John Locke and his ideals more than anything, okay? And, And what he promised, what John Locke promised in the social contract theory was an unheard of degree of individual freedom, unlimited opportunity to compete for material well-being and an unprecedented limitation of the arbitrary powers of the government to interfere with our initiatives. Those are a lot of big words. Here's what that says. The social contract theory says you can be you and free of everything else. No other person, no other government, no other structure in society can refuse you accomplishing the American dream. And that's all fine and well, except for the American revolutionaries also built our, our country hedging their bets that there would be some type of public spirit or collective sense that we belong to each other. Scoff. That's not true. Right? This is foolish because we're sinners. Caught up in our own private and individual pursuits and desires, we are quick to kill our closest competitors regardless of whether or not we have public spirit. My freedom's being threatened, so what am I gonna do? I'm gonna take you out. 
My well-being's being threatened. I don't care where you're from or some kind of public spirit. Get out of my way. I am an individual. This is what the social contract theory created in the very fabric and DNA of our country. And you and I as members of this country have this deeply ingrained in our souls. Every one of us. You're probably like, nah, not me. Yes, you do. Just, I mean, all we have to do is look at the last couple of years on every side of the aisle, right? I'm not gonna call out any specifics here. All you have to do is look at the side of the aisle you're on and then how do you demonize the other side and say, man, they're gonna take my freedom or man, they're trying to hinder my freedom, whatever. No, they're not. Or maybe they are. It's in all of us. In verses seven and eight, I'm not gonna read it, we see a workaholic man who strove after money and success and promotions, and it was all based on his own individual pursuits. And it says he had no one to share pleasure and life with because he had no one to be with. He refused relationship with other people. And then verses 13 through 16, we see a foolish king who had everything, rags to riches story, from prison to throne, but no one remembers him and no one cares about him because he didn't belong to anyone. He was an individualistic king. And again, this is us. This is the world that we live in. This rat race world creates us. Study after study after study shows we are living in a culture of increased isolation, we know more than we ever cared to know about someone else, and yet we know less about them truly. 25% of Americans say they have no one with whom they can discuss personal troubles. That's double from 20 years ago, and it'll be double 20 years from now. So that's about 20 years from now, 50% of Americans will have no one with whom they can discuss personal troubles. The most famous study comes from a man named Robert Putnam. You've probably heard of him, a Harvard sociologist who famously wrote the book called Bowling Alone. In Bowling Alone, he argues that our culture in America is is held together by social capital. Not physical capital, not financial capital, not emotional capital, but social capital. Social capital comes from networks of people who care for each other in tangible ways and don't just have warm feelings about each other. It's not just attraction or affiliation with each other. It's a network where you're bound together. So here's this. When a friend picks you up from the mechanic, because your car has to go in, and he drives you around all day, and you don't have to pay him gas money, that's social capital, okay? When someone comes and watches your dog while you're on a two-week vacation, you don't have to put them up in a canine hotel, that's social capital. Those things are so expensive. When someone comes together for an old-fashioned barn raising or fence building, that's social capital. And social capital is declining rapidly in America. Things that, we, that used to build social capital are being dismantled before our very eyes. So for example, Putnam says, for every 10 minutes that you commute to work, you lose 10% of your social capital. So if you commute one hour to work and one hour home, you're at a deficit socially. Why? Because you don't live where you work. The suburbs were built on the premise that you can work in an urban area but be safe in the suburbs. And what do we do? We sit in traffic. Katie and I sat in traffic for three and a half hours coming home from Santa Monica on Friday. It was miserable and we didn't talk because we had no social capital left. <laughs> Horrible. We build our homes at the front of the lot 
so I can live in the back, not in the front. And this has led to all kinds of other trends. It's not just socially in the community, it's in the home. Over the past 25 years, eating dinner as a family is down 43%. Having friends over once a week, at a minimum, is down over 35%. Sin has very real consequences. It has personal and social and communal consequences. It brings loneliness and isolation and it reduces us to a service-based culture where I have to pay for things that friends used to do for me, right? What's that service? It's like, uh, it's like Uber, but mechanics. Jackrabbit, is that what it's called, Josh? Taskrabbit? Thank you, Josh. I was at Josh's house one time and he hired someone, so I'm not calling you out, Josh. I love you, buddy. I could have put that together for you or I could have called Chuck to put it together for you because I don't have the tools, right? Uber, to and from airports, when friends used to do that for us. TaskRabbit, putting things together when we used to do it as a project. All of these things are declining and turning our culture into service-based culture. Now, long before Robert Putnam and Bowling Alone, we had Solomon, this incredibly wise and powerful and rich king who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit looks at people and sees how busy they are and yet how lonely they are and, and how isolated they are and said, this individualism, it's destroying you. And in the Proverbs, likely Solomon wrote this, Proverbs 15, 17, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. <laughs> Wealth is not defined by what's served on your table, but who's sitting around your table, right? The wealthy guy is the one who enjoys eating a family dinner. He comes home from work and they sit around the table and they like each other and they laugh at each other and they eat and they fight and they reconcile and they pray and they live and there's not a phone to be seen. That's true wealth even if you're eating herbs, not a fattened ox. We think our kids need steaks, but they simply need a plate of dino nuggets. Listen, I, I've, I've never met a kid who hated their dad because they drove a 2004 Toyota Sienna. But I met a lot of kids in high school who drove $70,000 BMWs and hated their dad because they thought their dad could buy a relationship with them. We don't need the BMW. The Sienna's fine with relationship. We don't need to live alone. We're meant to be together, which leads to the final point. Godly community from beyond the sun. This is verses nine through 12. Let me summarize the previous points. Evil oppression under the sun. Justice is not found under the sun. Justice is found from Jesus beyond the sun, okay? Evil envy under the sun. The solution to envy is the way of contentment, the way of Jesus. If I have him, I have everything. Evil individualism under the sun. The solution is life with others, empowered by the God beyond the sun. Look at verses nine through 12 with me. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, okay, all right, 
I see injustice. The way is, you know, preaching the gospel and building relationships, that's easy. The way is, the, you know, individualism's killing me, so just be in community. Envy's killing me, so just have contempt. That's all easy, right? Wrong. Wrong. Because here's what's gonna happen, church. You're gonna leave here. You're gonna go to Haven City Marketplace. You're gonna have some food. You're gonna go home. You're not gonna watch any football because the Rams won the Super Bowl and the season's over. And uh, yeah, thank you, Josh. Right? Baseball, spring training hasn't started because they're on a strike. It's all-star weekend for the NBA. And who cares about the NBA? And listen, you've got nothing going on. So maybe you're just gonna play some video games or you're gonna go hang out with friends or you're gonna, probably not though, because social capital, right? Um, Who knows what you're gonna do? But you're gonna wake up tomorrow and you're gonna forget all this. But here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna fight envy this week. It's gonna come. Right? You're gonna fight the urge to destroy someone else because of your power against them. You're gonna have something well up within you that says, I, I don't need others, I can do this on my own. It's gonna happen for some of us, work, home, school, wherever you find yourself. And you're not gonna, you're not gonna know what to do, which is why we need each other. Sin wreaks havoc in our relationships with God and with each other. Like we just trace Bible history, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and his sons, you and I, me and you, God and all of us, we we wreak havoc because of our sin. Like think about injustice for a second. Injustice is us pitting each other one, one against another. Think about envy, it's just our sin pitting us against each other. Think about individualism, it's just sin pitting us up against each other. And what does Ecclesiastes say? Instead of being pit up against each other, what does community do for us? It frees us and it binds us together. It gives us a reward for living in the gospel. We lift each other up. We keep each other warm. We prevail. We're not easily broken is what Ecclesiastes says. This is what happens when the living Lord beyond the sun unites us to himself and to each other. We have the gospel keeping us together. So when I am fighting this urge to oppress another, I can walk into community and confess it and they can remind me of the gospel that I am freed from my sin. When I have envy deep in my bones because I want something that that guy has down the street, I can say that, Katie, I'm fighting this. She can say, hey, you have Jesus, you don't need anything. When I'm fighting the urge to do life independent of others. By the way, autonomy simply means auto, free, nomos, law, free from the law. We live in a country that worships at the altar of autonomy, right? So when I'm fighting this urge to be autonomous from others, I can say, no, no, no. The Bible says I'm bound to you. I'm dependent upon you. You're dependent upon me. We need each other. And if I don't have you, I die. My sin nature eats me up. My sin nature devours me. It eats my very own flesh. This is why we need this godly community. And listen, it's not this miserable venture. Ecclesiastes 4 just gave us some beautiful things. It says there's a good reward for your work. It says if you fall, your community is gonna lift you up, right? Hear me, your workplace, your workplace, when you fall, they're not gonna lift you up, they're gonna fire you. I'm serious. 
You think I'm joking? It's gonna happen. It, it says that when you're cold, your community is gonna keep you warm. This is, this is metaphorical language to speak of why we need each other. When my heart is cold to the gospel, I need the warm fire of community to, to warm up my soul to Jesus. It says when someone presses up against me, when Satan presses against me, when my sin presses against me, I can't prevail on my own, but us together, we can prevail. A two-fold cord is not quickly broken. We will not be broken together. Alone, though, you will be. So listen, there's some dangers in this world that we live in. This rat race, again, is gonna feast on your sin nature. It's gonna say, man, go hurt others to get your way. Right, not in those words, but more subtly. Let your envy drive you because you deserve what everyone else has. No, you don't. Your individualism is gonna say, go, go live free. You don't need anyone else. Well, you could just be miserable like the workaholic man and the, the rich king. But instead, the gospel says, we are united to a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect community and united one to another. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Friends, resist the urge to make Story Church a 9 to 10 a.m. thing, okay? Or for most of us, 9.15 to 9.45. We're here like, seven, so show up whenever you want, just before nine, okay? Resist the urge to believe church is like everything else in this world. It's not. It's not something that you punch the clock, check the box, and then go home. This is a matter of life and death for us. Church is so much more than a hobby or a workplace, Church is a place where we walk in a bunch of broken people, but we help each other be a little less broken. Church is a place where we freely confess our sins and we are met with the voice and tenderness of Jesus one to another. You're forgiven and freed. You don't need to walk in that. Church is a place where you could say, I am needy. I have, I have something I need help with. And the church will rally to do it. We need each other, friends. So there's two ways. First, if you're not serving, I want you to serve. And I'm not saying I want you to serve because we have a lot to get done and it's gotta get done. I'm saying I want you to serve because it's in serving that you're gonna build your primary relationships at Story Church. It's a joy. I serve on the Dream Team almost every week. I love it. I love it. And it's serving that you're gonna build relationships with someone. You're gonna casually get to know them. You're gonna be invited to their home and you're gonna have lunch with them after church. And the second thing, after serving, jump into a home group, okay? We've got eight or nine of them scattered across the week, across the city of Rancho. And it's in, the, it's in home groups where the rubber meets the road of the Christian life, right? Because here's what's not happening right now. None of y'all are confessing your sins to me. You can, if you wanna come and I'll, I'll pray for you, I'll encourage you, I'll preach the gospel to you. But in a smaller setting with a group of believers, it's gonna be a freed up place to say, man, I'm battling envy, help me. I don't know what to do with, with, with this desire to hurt others. And someone's gonna help you. You need a home group. And listen, one of my favorite sayings is this. 
Uh, you don't find community, you build it, okay? Here's what I mean by that. You don't just show up to Story Church and be like, I found my community. No, no, you build it. I saw a beautiful story the other day uh, on the internet, which is a rare sentence. Um, uh, this guy mentioned a family who had came to his church a few years ago, and they went three or four Sundays without, without being invited into someone's home. And instead of, you know, like tucking tail and running and kind of groaning on the way out, because that's what happens, what'd they do? They looked outward and they said, I'm gonna invite every single person here to my home week after week. And over the course of three years, they had every single member of that church in their home on Sunday night. That's how you build community. And that's how you find the godly community that frees us from this rat race and unites us to Jesus. You don't find it, you build it. So serve, get in a group, and go out of your way to say, I don't know you, this is probably weird in any other setting, but the church isn't like the world, so let's go have lunch, right? And it's gonna be awkward, okay? The first little bit, I'm like, oh, well, what do you do? What do you do? What do you, what, like, what's a hobby for you? Huh, I don't have any hobbies, I have kids. Okay? And you're like, do you have dietary restrictions? Well, I don't really care that much, you can order what you want. Okay, like who cares? Embrace the awkward and go build community because again, this is a matter of life and death. When it hits you this week, when your sin fights you, when Satan tempts you, when this world wants to draw you into this rat race, you're not gonna be able to fight it alone. Scriptures say that. You need each other. Step into it. I don't know what your step is, but I want you to be courageous. I want you to be bold. I want you to prayerfully consider what does God have for me? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his gospel that does indeed free us. That when we committed high treason and injustice against you, you did not leave us to our own devices, but rather you sent your very own son to free us and to save us. And he faced the ultimate injustice Thank you for Jesus that though he had everything, he gave it all up to enter this world and dwell among us and save us. Not a drip of envy in his heart, but just pure contentment in the will of God. Thank you for Jesus who refused to live in an individualistic way, putting down, of, down others to gain an advantage in this world, but instead he did the exact opposite. He laid his life down for the sake of others. Would we be like him? Would we grow, God, in our desire for community? Would we grow in our desire to be a people who are content, who are bound together, and who are people of the gospel one to another? We need each other, God. And so we thank you for the precious gift that the church is. For as much flack as the church takes on the internet, and it's mostly baloney, for as much flack as it takes, this is a beautiful thing that Jesus purchased with his very blood. And right now he prays for us and he sustains us and he holds us together. So this is not something that's laughable or a hobby or to be ignored. This is something that is serious and solemn and it's a gift to be stewarded. So I thank you for this gift, God. And will we be a people who go out of our way to love one another, to serve one another, to help one another.
It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of being freed from our sins and bound to you, God. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.